Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Denver Community Church, this is Dan Cummings, worship and tech pastor here at DCC. And I want to make all of our podcast listeners aware of an interesting opportunity. As we all know, the past two years of the pandemic have caused almost all of us to re-examine our relationship to God, to our faith communities, and to church as a whole. For some, it may have been a time of reconnection to the divine, while for others, it was a season of disorientation and questions. As we move into this next season together, We want to get a clear picture of where all of the subgroups within our community fall on this spectrum so we can meet you there and engage in it together. This includes those who engage with DCC primarily through this podcast. If that's you and you're willing to share a bit with us, please email John Gettings at jgettings at denverchurch.org with the subject line podcast listener. That's J-G-E-T-T-I-N-G-S at denverchurch.org. Uh, with the subject line podcast listener. We look forward to hearing from you. And now back to the teaching podcast. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you uh, on this spring Sunday. Uh, if you want to follow along today, we're going to begin in Matthew 5, verse 8. Uh, during Lent, we've been going through the Beatitudes. These are eight statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. As you find your place there, um, there's a great story in Matthew chapter 15 where the religious people make a point of going to Jesus to ask him what they consider to be a very important question. And the question is this, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat according to the tradition of the elders? Now, I realize that in the midst of a pandemic, talking about hand washing, has traditionally been very important. 20 seconds, by the way, so much longer than I ever thought. But this question is actually centered on a tradition within Judaism that gets its start in Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus chapter 30, we're told that Moses tells the priests that whenever you go into the sanctuary, the tabernacle or the temple, you must wash your hands and wash your feet before going to the altar and performing sacrifices. This is something that is in the Bible. Well, eventually what happened, if you fast forward all the way through the timeline of the people of Israel, the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, is destroyed by the Babylonians, and they are carried off to captivity. And so they begin saying, well, what do we do if we don't have the altar of God, the temple, in our midst? And so they said, well, you know what the the, the altar is now is it's the dinner table. And so just like the priests who had to wash their hands before going to offer a sacrifice, we ought to wash our hands before we sit down at the table. This is what's behind the question asked of Jesus. Why don't your disciples do this? Why are they not washing their hands? And Jesus says to them, you know what? 
You're all concerned about this rule that's a tradition of the elders. What about the rule that's one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother? You forego that for your own preferences. Woe to you hypocrites. In other words, it doesn't go over well with Jesus. And then he says, do you not know that it's not what goes into you that makes somebody unclean, but what comes out of you? And then Peter pulls Jesus aside and is like, help me understand that. And Jesus says, listen, you're all concerned about what your hands touch and what goes into you, but that will pass through you. But what comes out of you, that comes from your heart. And that, Jesus says, is what's important. Not all of the rules and all of the traditions, but what's on the inside. Jesus says something very similar in a little bit more vague way in Matthew 5, verse 8. He says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, nearly every scholar recognizes that Jesus here is echoing Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, David writes, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, and who may go up on your holy hill? Those, he says, with clean hands and a pure heart. Now, David here is referring to Mount Zion when he talks about the mountain of the Lord and the holy hill. And in his day, the tabernacle would have been there. And it was believed that the glory of God dwelt in that place. So David says, who can go up to meet God? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. This idea of meeting God is this idea of seeing God, of communing with God. Jesus echoes that psalm, but he leaves something out. He doesn't say, blessed are those who have clean hands, who've washed them according to the tradition of the elders, and a pure heart. Jesus just says, blessed are those who have a pure heart, for they will see God. He's messing with this idea of purity and all of the laws of purity. And in Jesus' day, and even still today for the Jewish community, purity is an incredibly important thing. In Jesus' day, there was the oral tradition, which meant that there were laws and commentary on the 613 commandments that God gave to the people of Israel that we find in the first five books of the Bible. And eventually what happened is this oral tradition was finally written down in the third century, and now we call that work, that book, Mishnah. Mishnah is commentary on the Bible. And within Mishnah, there's different orders, there's different sections. One of those is called Purities, or Tohorot, and it's 126 chapters all dedicated to purity, to rituals, to how to make sure you can remain pure, to how to wash certain utensils and dishes, what to do with certain bodily discharges. Can I just pause and say, none of you ever expected this morning to show up and hear a pastor say bodily discharge from the platform in context, actually. Oh man, the surprises. But there's all of these rules that are written down so that you can remain pure. And not just so that you can remain pure, but so that your jars and your dishes and your utensils and your couches and your clothing and your tapestries and your doors and your house and your community and your friends, so that you can all stay pure. And this outward purity that they talked about was incredibly important because there were certain rules for you if you were going to go up and worship God. 
You had to be ritually pure. And if you were not, then you could not have this communion with God. Not only that, if you were unclean or impure, then you were cut off from your community because you didn't want to run the risk of making anyone else impure if they were going to go up and worship God. So this idea of purity is incredibly important and very exacting. There's one law that says this. If there is a corpse in the house and all of the doors are closed, all of the doors are unclean. But if there is a corpse in the house and one of the doors is open, only that door is unclean and the rest are clean. I mean, you start getting down to this minutia. There's another law that says this. If there is a vessel that is cracked and cannot hold liquid, but it can hold food, uh, foodstuffs, then it's clean. But if the handle is broken, then it's unclean. On and on and on and on. Why? Because this reflects the importance of purity and of purity as a condition to go and see God, to ascend the holy hill. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't really actually play around with any of that. Jesus doesn't get into and add to this commentary. Jesus goes deeper and he talks about the inner life. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. He's not sitting there talking about all of the purity codes and laws and everything else. What Jesus seems to be most concerned about is the heart, which is interesting because how do you prove that you have a clean heart? I mean, what can you do to show people Hey, my heart's pure, I'm good. Like, how do you put that on display? How do you measure it? Because there's no rituals for it. It's just a purity of being, a pure heart, a pure inner life. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now, this idea of purity of heart is, is not something new with Jesus. This is something the rabbis had talked about in Jesus' day and after and before. And one of the things they pointed out was that this refers to things that can be kept hidden. There's an interesting verse in Leviticus chapter 19, and it says, do not hate your sibling in your heart. And the rabbis say, this is a commandment about hypocrisy because you can keep it hidden. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us have someone in our life that we don't like? I'm so happy for you who are honest and for you who have your hand down, you're lying. And we all know it. Of course you do. Now, when you see this person, how do you respond to them? Do you say, you know what? Nobody cares about your phone conversations. Can you please take your phone off speaker mode so you don't have to hear you talking loud and hear echoing back because everything you do is about that annoying? Do you say that? No. You're like, no, we can't be honest. <laughs> What do we do? We fake it. Hey, how you doing? How was your weekend? And when they start talking inside, you're like, oh my God, why did I ask the question? Please stop talking for the love of God, Edward. No one cares that you were in the mountains again, right? You can keep it hidden. So it's interesting they say that God says, do not hate your brother in your heart. Do not reject your brother. Do not separate yourself from your brother in your heart. They say, yeah, this is about hypocrisy because what, it, what it's saying is don't live out of alignment outwardly with what's happening inwardly. Oh, that'll preach, won't it? I always know when it does because it gets really quiet in the room and there's a little bit of nervous laughter when I recognize it. Don't live out of alignment with what's within. 
There's a 13th century uh, rabbi named Rambam who talks about this very verse, and Rabbi Joseph Telushkin writes about it, and he says this, it is possible to observe most of Torah's commandments but still be a repulsive human being, or what Rambam calls a scoundrel with the full permission of Torah. In other words, it's possible to live as a total and complete hypocrite, to have everybody look at you and go, aren't they wonderful? But inside, you're filled with death. Jesus, by the way, had a lot to say about hypocrisy. Jesus, in, in fact, referred to the religious as hypocrites. And that wasn't a compliment. Now, hypocrites is simply the Greek word for actor, and the word comes from the masks that were worn by actors in the ancient theater. Now, keep in mind, the actors were, in that day and age, they were celebrated, they were respected, they were celebrities, just like they are today. But what Jesus was saying to the religious when he said, woe to you hypocrites, is he said, all you're doing is acting. It's not real. You have a mask on. No one can see the real you. What you are doing outwardly is not in alignment with what's happening inwardly. Because Jesus knew that religion somehow lends itself pretty easily to extolling and praising and honoring performance. Now, I know it's really hard to imagine what it would be like to live in a day and age where we celebrate performance. <laughs> where we celebrate somebody's life outwardly not being in full alignment with what's happening inwardly. And somehow, like, we now have this brand new tool at our disposal just to turn the volume knob up on a little bit of, like, performative Christianity, don't we? We're going to post the right thing. We're going to repost the right thing. I mean, you guys remember um, last Sunday night what you were doing? Anyone? Did anything happen last Sunday that people were talking about? It was interesting. If you were watching the Oscars, Chris Rock made a comment. Will Smith slapped him. That's the short story. And when it happened, if you were like me, you were like, <laughs> that was hilarious. Oh, no, that was dead serious. So my wife and I are talking about whether or not it was real or not. So I just Google Will Smith, Chris Rock. It was already trending on Twitter. And it was just comment after comment after comment after comment after comment, all about people's hot takes on it. As though we need to hear from that many people. Then the next day, Will Smith posts an apology, and he directs it to Chris Rock. And everyone was like, oh, good, now we can put this one to bed. Oh, we all felt compelled to keep posting and commenting, making a statement about the statement that he made. And then Chris Rock goes on tour, and then everyone wants to know what he's going to say. We, we just can't stop posting. I've actually received um, direct messages from people after a tragedy, whether it's a shooting or whether it's police brutality or whether there's, I don't know, some sort of uh, awful thing that happens at a school. People, are you, you going to post on it? No, not all the time. Because I don't feel compelled to compost and to comment on every single thing that's happening in our culture. Cole Arthur Riley, the creator of Black Liturgies, actually wrote an article about that this week. And this is what she had to say. She said, we've learned to perform our grief in the public arena. History is unfolding every day, and everyday people are at once trying to make sense of it and prove that they are on the right side of it. 
The invasion of Ukraine, the debate over mask mandates, the tide of attacks against Asian Americans, each worthy of our attention and even our outrage. Social media is one way to pay attention, but it isn't the only way. Audre Lorde famously said, your silence will not protect you. This wisdom has been taken to the extreme. To be silent is to be complicit. People, including myself, have said, this can be true. There is certainly a silence born of cowardice, a silence that emboldens oppressors, but sometimes to be silent is finally to become honest, to halt the theater. In the quiet, we at last hear the sound of our own interior world, the pain or numbness, the guilt, the nothing at all. In a world of so many traumas and terrors, I am desperate for silence. It is about meeting oneself. The way you might encounter yourself in the silence of, say, Journaling is distinct from how you reflect in the public arena. In silence, a certain veil is lifted. We might realize that the rage we feel in public is born from fear or despair in private. Healing is a very quiet thing. In the silence, we can wrap our wounds. It's almost as if she's saying, can, can you stop performing? Can you stop posting can you stop showing everybody how woke you are, how aware you are, how right you are, how you're on the right side of history? Boy, is that ever an arrogant statement. <laughs> Can you just be quiet and pay attention to what's happening within? It's like she's echoing the words of a first century rabbi who lived in the northern region of Israel who said, woe to you, you blind guides, you hypocrites. You look so good from the outside, but inside, you're just bones and death and decay. In other words, you're just impure. You see, Jesus is not interested in performance, not even a little bit. He never has been. And yet somehow in the religious world, we are. When I had my first job, every Sunday that I preached, I had to wear a suit and tie. That's 100% true. Some of you are like, I can't picture you in a suit and tie. Well, I look really good. <laughs> um, and uh, so people, when I started working there, I had one suit. Even today, I still only have two suits. Um, but I didn't have any dress shoes, truly. The, the, the dressiest shoe I had was a pair of Doc Martens. Some of you under 25 are like, they were in style back then? <laughs> Easy, okay? So I would wear Doc Martens in a suit. And people complained. I see him wearing the suit, and he looks pretty good. But I mean, the shoes. We need dress shoes. So then I bought dress shoes that were Doc Martin wingtips. That didn't do it. It was still about... The shoes. Now you hear that and you think, oh my, people were policing you like that? Yes, it was unreal. And I'll be honest with you, when I moved out to Denver, I really thought I left all of that policing and performing in rules and regulations and preferences. I thought I left all that legalism and fundamentalism behind. I really did. But I have to be honest with you, over the last few years, I've been shocked to see it, not just in the conservative evangelical circles that I grew up in, but in the progressive evangelical circles. 
still this policing and performance and make sure you say the right words and we don't really care about what's in your heart. We care about the impact of what you do. And we're gonna call you out. We're gonna post about you. Even saying this, like kind of poking the bear a little bit this morning, I'm sure that's some people who'll be offended. Can't believe he said that. Okay. Trust me, I've been down this road before. It was just with people on the opposite side. And honestly, it's saddening. It really, truly, deeply makes me sad Because Jesus says, if you want to perform, that's fine. Just know that's all you're going to get. That's like the sum total of your religion is having people slow clap when you post the right thing or give you a like or maybe gain a few followers because somebody reposts you. Yeah, that's as good as it gets. This wasn't Jesus warning people. This was Jesus telling them the sorrowful reality of the world that they created for themselves that all you're going to get is pats on the back. Jesus even makes a joke about it in Matthew chapter 6. He says, hey, listen, when you do good deeds, don't do it for everyone to see them. That's what the hypocrites do. He says, you've been there when they go and they give their tithe in the temple, and they're flanked by a whole army of people, their little entourage, and they're blowing trumpets and celebrating, and they're holding up the gift and dumping it in and making all the noise. And he says, and when people see them and go, oh, aren't they so generous, you know what? That's all they get. But when you, when you do good deeds, do them in secret. And your Father in heaven who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. The rabbis have a similar saying. They say, he who gives in secret is greater than Moses. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And these are the words he speaks to his disciples. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Here's a modern paraphrase. Be careful about posting on social media to put your actions, ideas, and convictions on display to impress others. You will surely get likes and followers, but that's all you'll get. Jesus just isn't interested in it. And for some of you, that might be really good news. For others, it might be really troubling news. Because God's not interested and impressed by all the things that you or I can do. And Jesus never has been. What he's interested in is exactly what he talks about in this blessing. Blessed, he says, are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have an inner life that's honest with God. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. One commentator pointed towards someone who has communion with God is not the Pharisee who stands up and prays and looks at the sinner tax collector beside him and says, oh, Lord God, thank you for not making me like this horrible sinner next to me. Isn't that a great prayer, by the way? I mean, like, funny, great. Meanwhile, The tax collector will not look up. He's on his face, and he begs forgiveness for his sinful condition. And Jesus says, I tell you what, the guy who's on the ground begging forgiveness, he's the one who goes home justified. He's the one who goes home connected to God in heaven, not the one who's standing there performing for everyone to see. This is what Jesus celebrates. This is what he promises. This is what he says we are to pursue. And that can be good news, And that can be bad news. 
But Jesus cuts through all of the performance. And ultimately, he gets down to our hearts. Where is your heart? This is what Jesus is asking. Is it honest? Is it open? Is it pure? Maybe we can say it this way. Is it authentic? Is it in alignment with the way that you're living outwardly, or is it out of alignment with the way that you're acting outwardly? Now, some of you may be here thinking, well, how do you know what's in my heart? I don't. And I'm not proposing to. And I don't even know that Jesus was saying, well, I know what's in your heart because I'm Jesus. Like, I just think he was saying, hey, the reality is, is if you really want union with God, if you want to see God, then have a pure heart. I do think, though, that there's maybe some questions that we can ask ourselves that would be helpful in considering whether or where our heart is and whether our actions outwardly are in alignment with our inner life. Maybe asking a question like, do I want people to see and do I want people to notice when I do good things? Is that thought even in my head? Do I ever pick up my phone to post something and think, people are really going to like this? When, when I'm doing something, do I have it in my head to keep it secret? Do I have it in my head to hide it from others, knowing that God will see what's done in secret, and that's really what it's all about? When I'm speaking, when I'm saying something to somebody, when I'm relating to someone, am I trying to put my best foot forward because in the end of it, we all really like to be liked? Or am I operating out of a deep place within that's an accurate reflection of where I'm at? You see, I don't know where you are, but I will say, in my own experience, our willingness to respond to those questions and respond to them honestly and thoroughly may actually tell us where our heart is. It's not like you sit there and go, do I want people to see me doing good things? No, I would never be that kind of person. No, no, no. Actually, take some time with that one. Let it work you. Ask others what they see coming out of you. This is how we begin to get down to the level of soul, to the level of heart that Jesus seems so compelled by. It's not the clean hands. It's not the performance. It's not the ritual. It's your entire inner life. I think you can tell when you're around people who have that kind of inner life because they just don't seem to be easily offended They're not people who are sitting there demanding certain words that come out of your mouth. They're not demanding certain behaviors. They're free to let you be who you are in all of your beauty and in all of your mess and in all of your imperfection because they know who they are. Is this the kind of life you are living? Is this the kind of life I'm living? See, when we begin to reflect, we can begin to get down to that level I'm not here to tell you that what you do or don't do is right or wrong. What I am here to tell you is that Jesus cares about is that in alignment with what's inside. There's a story in the book of 1 Samuel in which Samuel has to go 
and he's gonna anoint a new king over Israel. And he goes to the house of Jesse, and when he walks in, he sees Jesse's oldest son. His name is Eliab, and Eliab is really tall. And Samuel goes, this guy, man, surely he's the Lord's anointed. And God says to him, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, do not consider his height. <laughs> yeah. Try preaching that in a Dutch context, and they're all like 6'8", and they're like, excuse me? Don't argue with me, it's the word of God. Do not consider his height, Jesus says. He said, this is the problem with you people. This is a loose translation. He says, people, Samuel, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Isn't it interesting that those words can be tremendously comforting and at the same time tremendously convicting? Don't look at all the stuff people look at because God looks at something else entirely. God looks at the heart. That can be comforting and that can be convicting. And I imagine for those sitting on the hillside with Jesus in Galilee, in Matthew chapter five, when he's speaking the Beatitudes, some were very comforted and some were very convicted. Because we know that there were some there who were those who were unclean and impure, who didn't wash their hands before they ate. These were people of the earth, is what the religious people would have called them. Religious people said things like, if your cloak touches an am ha'aretz, a person of the earth, then you are unclean. So they would always make sure to keep their distance. So for someone who is one of those sinners, as they would have been called, who's relegated to the margins, who's unclean, who's not fit to ascend the hill of the Lord, to hear Jesus say, hey, blessed are the pure in heart, for you will see God. How comforting. But for those who are really bent on performance and we're being rewarded well for it, to hear Jesus say that, how convicting. And I imagine that in a room like this today, some of us feel comforted and others feel convicted. Or maybe... We're a mixture of two. But the promise that Jesus gives is not blessed are the pure in heart because then God's gonna come and pack you on the back. No, it's they will see God. This is an image of union with God. Psalm 24, it's about ascending the holy hill. It's about going, it's about worshiping, it's about intimacy, it's about knowing. And Jesus says, when you have a pure heart, you will have intimacy with God. The divine. And as I think about these words, this blessing, this promise of Jesus, it just makes so much religion so entirely sad. Because so much religion on all sides seems to really just reward and celebrate performance. And Jesus says, yeah, if that's what you want, it's all that you'll get. And in continuing to pursue that, the really bad news is you will miss union with God. Let's pray together. God, I know these, uh, these ideas are piercing. 
And they cut us open. They ask us to look inside, examine our motives, be honest about what's within. And I ask that we would have the courage to be those who do that. That we would be those who, like Jesus, are concerned about our inner life far more than all the ways that we can perform, that we can act, that make sure we say the right things the right way. God, I ask that you would allow us in our honesty to see your grace, your mercy, and your love that waits for each of us who recognizes those places and spaces in which our outer life is out of alignment with our inner life. We pray these things together this morning in the strong name of Jesus and all my siblings said, amen.